So worshiping is not like cheering for your favorite sports team. You know, some of you, you know, you love the Angels or you love the Dodgers because they're your home team, right? I, I grew up in the Bay Area, so the Oakland Athletics, I will cheer for them no matter what. I have a friend who loves the Mets. No matter how badly they do, he continues to cheer for them. And, and we, we appreciate that, right? Like, you don't want someone to be a fair-weather fan, uh, in the same way, like, someone's like, well, but w- what if we're truly better? And it, it annoys us when someone argues that their way is better. Just spend any time, go outside of this country and talk about how you think America is better and get all kinds of annoyed looks from people or let someone from another nation come here and tell you about how their homeland is better. And there's a sense we, should, we can argue about that stuff, right? Like, there's, there's good discussions to be had about what is better. But remember... In the nation of Israel, there were many gods all around. There were all kinds of gods. Each nation had its god, and there was a temptation to think, well, are we just arguing over silly things? Like, yeah, Yahweh is God, but Baal is the god of over there. Is that okay? Is that fine? Can we just accept it? And Israel was constantly pulled into this temptation to believe there actually are multiple gods when in fact, there is only one real God who truly created the world. And more than that, he is a loving and kind God who cares for his creation. But he's also the God who judges his creation. See, this morning, I hope and pray that we would be able to build a conviction once more. Maybe it's just reminding you of the conviction you've always had of who God is so that we may stand up for Jesus Christ and say, He is God. All people need to listen to him. Paul David Tripp wrote, corporate worship is designed to remind you again and again that the following the Lord all the time and every way is never a bad choice. May may that be this time, this morning. May we be reminded that following God is never a bad choice. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, entitling this sermon, The Reason We Worship. The Reason We Worship, because it gives reasons why the people should worship. Now, this psalm, you said, can be broken up into a couple different sections. Basically, you have verses 1 through 3 is this call to praise. Verses Verses 4 through 19 is the cause for praise, and verses 20 through 22 is the conclusion to praise. The conclusion to praise. And that's how it's built up, but we're going to break it down a little more. So if you didn't notice in your Bible, we do have, or in your notes, I'm sorry, uh, we do have five reasons to sing to the God of all the earth. Five reasons to sing to God this psalm brings out. Look along with me. Verses 1 through 3 starts us off. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. The first reason to sing is praise God because it is right. Verses one through three, praise God because it is 
right. Or you could say, God rightly commands it. The psalmist calls out to the righteous, those who are godly. And he says, sing loudly for joy. I know it says shout for joy, and some people take that like, oh, we just need to shout and make random noises. But that's not really the word used here in Hebrew. The word has the idea of chant together. This is even corporate. It's yell this together, sing loudly. The righteous who do God's commands. The upright are those who live morally. And he's like, don't just do good deeds. No, sing good songs. Notice, if you would, verse 1 is very similar to the end of chapter 32, or Psalm 32, verse 11. See, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Shout for joy in the Lord, O righteous. Praise befits the upright. See how those are similar? Because there's an order to the Psalms. I hope one thing you're getting as we've been going through this is these Psalms are supposed to be connected. And so when he starts Psalm 33, they're purposely thinking of Psalm 32, which is all about David being forgiven for his sins. You want to know what makes a person sing really loud and excited? When they know that they deserved a death sentence. And instead, they're getting blessings, forgiveness from God. They deserve being cut off. But God welcomes them into his family. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said, To rejoice in temporal comforts is dangerous. To rejoice in self is foolish. To rejoice in sin is fatal, but to rejoice in God is heavenly. It just relieves you, like, praise the Lord for what he has done in my life. But notice he doesn't just say, shout. He says, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with lad shouts. Lyres and harps and strings, God is saying, use music. Now, that might seem obvious to us, but for a lot of people in church history, this has actually been very contentious. They're like, no, 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 no. no. In the New Testament, it only speaks about singing. There's no mention of music in the New Testament. So in like Ephesians 5.19 says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody the Lord with your heart. And people argue, well, no, the making melody is only with your voice. We should never play instruments. Today, there are churches like the Church of Christ, which has lots of other theological problems that do not ever have instruments. Now, God, I would argue, one of the things that's not a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. Some things are clearly set aside. Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the ultimate sacrifice. So you and I don't have to make sacrifices anymore. We don't need sheeps and goats because we have Jesus. But the Bible does not stop the commands to use musical instruments ever. That's one reason why we do play. It's not just because we want to. It's because God commands it and allows it. You'll notice we, verse 3 will say, sing to him a new song. Now, some people get upset like, wow, why are we doing new songs? The Bible says to. We didn't even sing. Let's sing a new song. But it doesn't just mean new song, like something new that you've just made up or come up with. Song, it also means a fresh experience of God's grace. 
remembering it anew. Think of it like teammates, maybe a football team who would sing a chant before their games and they get back together years later. What do they want to do together? But that chant. Or an old married couple who hear the song they fell in love with again and it brings back the refreshment and noise. The, the emotions flood back. This is the idea. Sing a new song. Sing it in a way that reminds us of that same truth over and over again. Righteous singing is right and powerful. We sing because it is right. We know Martin Luther, the famous reformer, literally lit the world on fire as he brought the Bible into the language of the people and burned away so much of the oppression that existed in the Roman Catholic Church. He opened people's eyes to the doctrines that were in the Bible that they could never see because the Roman Catholic Church hid them. He tore down the tyrannical rule that made people do extra-biblical things. But interestingly, many of Luther's opponents, those who hated him dearly, you know what they were most afraid of? His songs. Singing was the heart of the Reformation because singing got into normal people's lives. Singing changes us. Righteous people speak the love language of worship songs. Now, I, I know some of you are not concert goers. You know, you look at other people who, they just love going to music. And, and I know Rick was even talking about, hey, put, put your hands up. And hey, praise God, we can totally do that. And some of you, though, you're like, I would never put my hand up in a million years. That is just not me. I'm not that kind of emotional person. Be gone with it. Why do people even want to go to concerts? Hey, that's fine. But I hope you are convinced that you must sing, not because of some emotional response in you or the kind of person you are, but because it is right. Because it is the correct thing to do. Singing changes us. Even if you don't have a good voice, you sing. And many of us, beside, we have a favorite style of music. Maybe you are very into music and you have a favorite style. You might love, you know, Rock, rap, bluegrass, classic hymns, contemporary choruses, hard metal music. And, and you may love your style of music, and I think that's really great, but I hope you notice something in here. He tells them to use certain instruments, right? But do we have the notes? Do we have the style of music and how it was played? No. I think that shows us and Theologians have agreed for centuries the most important thing in a worship song is the words that direct the worship, not the type of music it is. I was once told by someone, he's like, we all know what heavenly music is. Everyone has this sense of heavenly. He's like, you go and watch the, uh, the, watch the movies and there's scenes of heaven. What do they play? That sweet classical music. That's what heavenly music is and that's the kind of music we should play. But... I would argue, we don't look at romantic comedies and say, we all know what love is. Even the world shows us what love is in the movies because movies are not real life. Movies are what some person came up with or what they wanted to try and entertain with. Bob Coughlin, writing this, says, God's glory can't be expressed in one musical style and one kind of music is insufficient 
to communicate the broad range of responses to God. Just like one language is not the heavenly language. We speak English in this church because we're English-speaking and English-speaking community, but there is something so beautiful about singing a worship song in a different language. And like, you might not even understand it, but you look at the words, you're like, wow, this is amazing, like what they're saying about God. Same way with different styles. We may worship in our style. You may go to Africa or the church down the street, and it's a different style. And what matters is who it is praising, who it is glorifying, and how he is lifted up. But someone might think, man, I'm not a righteous person. He says, righteous, sing. I've got too many sins. Should I sing? Oh, yes. Because secondly, secondly, verses four through nine, we praise God because he made you. He made you by his word. Verses four through nine. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Again, the second reason we should praise God, praise God because he made you, and he made you by his word. You'll notice, if you look down in your Bible, beginning of verse four, has the word for. So it's connecting with what just came before it, right? Sing to the Lord, why? For the word of the Lord is upright. This is the reason why we should sing. His word is upright and faithful, meaning God does not change his promises. What God's word says will be two millennia later, six millennia later, into all of eternity, God's word is the same. And notice this. It says, end of verse five, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word has said. means his promise, covenant-keeping love. And God does not just give his promises to one place. He doesn't just apply it and say, ah, you know what, the United States of America, I'll give them my promises. Or you know what, Ohio, California's getting too bad. They're not going to have my promises anymore. Just, just Ohio, right? Like, no, God's promises are everywhere on everything. The whole earth is filled with God's promise-keeping love. And it was this word that created the whole world. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth, and all their hosts. This echoes, of course, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. God said, let, let there be light, and there was light. God created everything by saying, and it existed. Our elder, Bing Kay, was talking about this in the 9 a.m. Sunday school class about how people got wrong this important issue that God made everything and they were corrupting the truth. Creation itself responds to God's orders. Are we so foolish to try and deny his word? But even more than that, 
The Greek word translated from the Hebrew here is the word logos, which is used in John 1. John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So we know, it's not just as the kids were talking about too, it's not just God the Father, but God the Son. The crazy confusion, but delight that is the Trinity, that God was with God. But there's only one God. And Jesus was the word of God who made everything. And more than that, he says in verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Not just he did, but he does now. This is what Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says, that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This refers in verse 7 to rainstorms, floods, clouds in the skies, these natural everyday things. The water cycle itself is done by the word of God. It's done by Jesus. He holds this world together. And so verse 8 tells us that Yahweh is not just the God of Israel. Jesus is not just the Christian God. All people must fear him. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. People should fear God because he spoke. And what he says happens. Verse 9 explains this. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Think about what's happening right now in politics. What's always happening in politics is someone gets up and gives this massive speech and they try and convince everyone and, and you know what? It falls on deaf ears. Or how many times have you spoken to a child to try and get them to listen and you can see it's literally going in one ear and out the other and they don't hear a thing. God's words are so powerful. He speaks into the void itself and creation springs into existence by the power of his voice. God is to be worshiped. All the world should worship Jesus because every single person is made by Jesus in the image of God. Do you know that racism is antithetical to the Bible? This idea that there are somehow some people who are higher species and better kinds of races than others. That's antithetical to the Bible. And this has been encouraged for a long time by evolutionary thinking. Evolutionary thinking, the idea that we have just kind of evolved and changed from molecules to man. That we went from monkeys to humans. And this thinking has existed long before Charles Darwin, but though he wrote in his book on the origin of species, and the, um, the subtitle of that book is The Survival of Superior Races. And some people took that idea, and they took a man named Ota Benga. 
Otabenga was a young African man in the Congo in 1904. Not that long ago. In 1904, he was a small man, barely above four foot, and an African explorer and former slave trader named Samuel Werner met him. And he took him. Perhaps he stole him. Perhaps he convinced him. That's up for debate. But Werner took him and brought him to the United States. And there in the United States, they took him to the Bronx Zoo. And they put him in a cage to display the lessons of human evolution. The zoo directors saw no difference between a wild beast and this short little black man. And for the first time in an American zoo, a human being was displayed in a cage. He was even given cage mates to keep him company, a parrot and an orangutan, all in the idea of saying, well, let's show how much more we have evolved since this ancient time and this old man. But Otabenga was made in the image of God. Otabenga was to worship Jesus Christ and be given the respect of someone made in that image of God. Friends, we live in Orange County. Even here in this room, we have people from various ethnic backgrounds. You might go to lunch afterwards and sit outside or in, inside, and you will hear numerous different languages, right? And it's not just the different languages that we have around us, the lifestyles, the rich, the poor, the thief, the churchgoer, the gay, the straight, the transgender, the political activists, all must bow before Jesus. There, there is no, well, you have your God and I have my God, or you have your religious preferences and I have mine. No, Jesus is God of all. And we believe his word is powerful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. If you've never memorized Hebrews 12, um, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, please do so. But it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, we preach, we counsel, we evangelize using the word of God. Because God's word is what changes people. God's word is what calls all nations. You might have someone who is your neighbor or your friend who thinks very differently than you, who is very different than you. And you know what can change them? You know what they can understand? The call of the voice of God. God should be praised because it is right. God should be praised because he, he's made us, made us all. And third, God should be praised because he controls all. God controls everything. Verses 10 through 15. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all observes all 
their deeds. We praise God because he controls all. God rules all things according to his plan, and it cannot be stopped. It says here that, you know, the council of the nations is nothing. Psalm 2, verse 1 said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Psalm 2, 4 says, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The nations, the world, they come up with their false gods. They come up with their plans against Christianity. They think of ways. They said the Bible will be obsolete in a, in a generation. And you know what God does that entire time? He just laughs at their foolishness. Verse 12 here stands out, though, as the Lord is over all the nations. He says, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. The transliterate the 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 uh, meaning behind that capital L-O-R-D, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. God deserves the worship of all mankind. He rules them, and yet he chose one nation whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, who would be his heritage, Israel. Yet verse 13 also says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. He sees everything. No one shoplifts while the clerk is watching them, do they? And this says, verses 13 and 14, that God is watching. Yahweh sees all. There's no distracting his gaze, no diverting his attention, no escape in his eyes. He sees it all. And he doesn't just see. It says in verse 14, where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. 15, he who fashions the heart of them all and observes their deeds. He doesn't just fashion, or he doesn't just observe, he fashions. He creates. As Proverbs 21.1 said, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. The king's heart. All the nations who are ruled by these people and the king's heart is just like a waterway that God controls. Their acts and decisions are not insulated from God's plans any more than the futile efforts of the king of Pharaoh were. In Romans chapter 9, verse 17, Paul writes, speaking to Pharaoh, that God says, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God gave Pharaoh his position so that God could bring him down. Now, we can't get into the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility now. Pastor Yuri has done a great job of explaining that in the past. But I want to just point out, the Bible doesn't see this as a contradiction. The Bible doesn't see that God forms their hearts and God sees their actions as being contradictions. He gives judgment on their sin. The compliance of free will and God's will should give us hope because God always wins. Those who believe his word win. On May 21st, 1922, 
a very liberal and probably the most famous pastor of the time, Harry Emerson Fosdick, went up to his pulpit and he preached a famous and infuriating sermon called, Shall We Let the Fundamentalists Win? He, as a progressive Christian of that time, rejected all the supernatural from the Bible. He's believed in science and reason. So virgin birth, out. Bodily resurrection, out. Jesus dying for sins, ugh, awkward. Um, instead, we have modern ideas. Contemporary Christianity, he believed, should focus on ethics and social reform, making the world a better place. And at that time, the progressives thought they'd win. You know what they did? They kicked every Bible-believing Christian out of the seminaries at the time. The mainline denominations were accepting and teaching this method. But you know what's happened to those seminaries and those denominations? They went into a 60-year death spiral. Around the world, do you know what form of Christianity is growing? One that believes in the supernatural. One that believes the Bible actually is true and not just some stories that eh, are sometimes right, sometimes wrong, and it's our job to figure it out. The supernatural word of God is what grows believers. God controls who wins and succeeds. So Irvine Community Church, I ask you, who are the enemies that you fear? Who are the nations trying to conquer? Who are the ideologies that are trying to uproot and destroy your foundations? We have shooters in schools. We have shooters in shopping markets. We have shooters in churches. We have many threats. Do we not? Do we have anything to fear though? No. Why? because there is nothing that God does not see and there's nothing that God does not control. In a world gone crazy, you know what we need? To worship this God who is bigger, who is more powerful, who is over all these things and who has shown himself to be faithful again and again. When that fear stirs up, when we think of, wow, maybe, maybe this is gonna win. Maybe the church is done for. Maybe I'm done for. Look at the past. Look at the stories, like the exodus from Egypt. Look at the disciples on Friday night and the joy that came Sunday morning. Look in church history at the many examples, like Fosdick, of those who said, Christianity as we know it is dead, long live new Christianity, and that is now dying or dead. And sing the great songs to remind you, to stir your heart. Remember, this God is worthy of your praise. God is worthy of praise because it is right, because he made all, he controls all, and fourth, praise God because he takes care of you. Praise God because he takes care of you. We have a catechism question like, why should we give glory to God? Because he made me and takes care of me. 
Verse 16 through 19 brings up this take care of part. It says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. This is a great image, right? No king, no matter how mighty, can escape. No powerful army can overcome God. God is just, and there is no escaping him. There's no running from him. The war horse, or the cavalry, was the greatest military power at that time. They would sweep on their chariots into valleys and just wipe out full armies of men. And God is saying it means nothing. The psalmist, I believe, means this to actually be terrifying because he's not just speaking in the context of Psalm 32 to just the righteous. He's speaking to those like David who are sinners, those who are guilty for the things that we have done wrong, and God sees every one of them. I know it should be comforting at times to think, oh yeah, God sees me. He knows my struggles. That's good, but God also sees your sins. And you just stop for a moment and think, if God really seen everything that's going on in my life, and not just what I've done, but what I've thought, we should get very uncomfortable very fast. But that's the whole point. Because a lot of people try different things to try and make themselves right with God. They're like, all right, God, I'm going to make a deal with you. All right, God, here's my good deeds. Here's how I'm going to fight for you, God. Here's how I'm going to make up for the things inside me I know that are wrong. But God doesn't save the self-confident with their grand armies and their great war horses or those who have great deeds. God doesn't save the one who looks to a king or human strength to deliver them. God saves the one who humbly trusts and hopes in him. Look at verse 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. He sees all, but his loving, tender eyes are for those who fear him. What does it mean to fear God? Well, it can mean a lot of things. I, I think in the context here, fear means those who realize that they're guilty. God's standard is so much greater than mine. I've done wrong. And so instead of trying to earn our way, it says, those who hope in his steadfast love, those who hope in God's promises and God's payment for our sin in Jesus Christ, that we have nothing to offer. So we trust in him to pay the full. It takes a lot of faith to trust. It takes a lot of humility. You could think of situation in a courtroom as often is used when it comes to the idea of salvation is you are declared guilty and you owe a fine of millions of dollars and you don't have millions of dollars. But you got, someone told you they're going to show up in court 
and they are going to testify that they will pay your fine to get you off scot-free. You, it takes a lot of faith to trust that person to show up when you're in the court and not to be like, well, but what can I do? What's my plan B? There is no plan B. Trust. Famine is one of the greatest threats that existed in the ancient world. Death is the greatest enemy. And Jesus said he conquered death. God doesn't have to ignore sin and just sweep them underneath the rug. She'd be like, ah, it's okay. You didn't do anything wrong. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, it says, God puts forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This death of Jesus was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins and it is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, we need God to take care of us because there's something wrong with us. Thomas Jefferson, the famous Third president of the United States, writer of the Declaration of Independence, and all the way around just superb intellect man, one day wrote, were I to be the the founder of a new sect or a new religion, my fundamental principle would be that we are to be saved by our good works, which are within our power, and not by our faith, which is not within our power. And the irony of that statement, that we should be saved by our good works, is Thomas Jefferson only appeared good because he had what we call today really good spin doctors. He superbly concealed his image and made himself look good publicly, but he was full of so many bad works. You, many of you know the story of his slave, Sally Hemings, And on her deathbed, Sally Hemings told her son Madison that he and her siblings were the children of Thomas Jefferson. But it was so well hidden and covered up and denied that it wasn't until 1998 that DNA evidence proved that the Hemings' descendants were part of the Jefferson family. See, Jefferson was only good at lying, which... Many of us are as well. Now, if you are a forgiven Christian, if God is taking care of you, then praise God to the one who has covered your sins. And if he is taking care of your forever problem, we can trust him to take care of our problem today. But if you're not a Christian, or if you like Jefferson, are like, nah, I'm pretty good enough. I like, I, I think I've done enough good deeds. I think I can, you know, maybe add God, but I want to impress God. There's stuff I can do. Maybe Jesus helps a little, but I'm okay. Please recognize the bad news and good news. The bad news is, is that the war horse will fail. You cannot keep God's laws. All the laws of the Bible are meant to show you, you are a sinner who is not good enough. Maybe you can convince other people for a little while like Thomas Jefferson did, but the truth comes out. Jesus says you need 
hope. You need him. And that comes by simply admitting, I have nothing in myself to give. Oh, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. And it will cost you everything to follow him. You have to give up all of your things, everything you think is worth in yourself. But the reward is far greater. He gives all his righteousness, the good things he's done, and the forgiveness so that God looks upon you and smiles because he sees Jesus. Even today, I'd encourage you, at the end of the service, talk to the people around you. Come talk to Bing or Yuri or myself. And let us say what it means to follow Jesus. Now, the psalm concludes, verse 20 and 22, just summarizing what was already said. And we're supposed to praise God because of his promise-keeping love. Verse 20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Notice verse 20 begins with a first-person plural pronoun, our. Our soul, together. He is our help. He is our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust. We come together to sing. The people of Israel, too, they lived their separate lives. They had their separate homes and responsibilities, but they came together as one, saying God is the one who must protect us and help us. He is the only one worth waiting on. Trusting him, not always easy, but it brings joy. And verse 22 ends with this reminder, let your steadfast love, that loving kindness, it fills the earth, according to verse 5. It delivers those who fear and wait for him, verse 18 and 19. And the psalmist prays, may God keep his promises. Everything changes. But you know what stays the same? God. God always gives grace to those who fear him. He always gives enough to those who trust in him for salvation. And he always judges those who in their evil persist to reject him. Ron Owens reminds us that worship matters. You can see the quote in your bulletin as well. He says, there is one fundamental reason why the living God wants his people to assemble in worship. That is to ascribe to him the worth and value that are his, individually and as a body, and to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. This is in your bulletin. Worshiping God is not a means to an end. It is an end itself. Worship the God who actually keeps his promises. I I think perhaps if you take away maybe one application from today, it should be to believe what worship really is. See, when we gather, it's not like going to a movie theater or a play or a sports event where you're there for a couple hours and you're entertained, you're distracted from the world's problems, but you get to sit as an audience member. That's not the church. The church is a reminder for each of us of a reality. The call to believe the truth and to be trained for spiritual battle and your ministry, even in the pew, is important. Do you know some of you are like, I can't do anything. But do you know even the fact of your presence and your singing, the fact that you say to others, he is our help and our shield. 
Sometimes the greatest suffering produces the greatest singing. How encouraging that is to others. The best application we can get is that we have to worship God and see him as greater than all the other stuff in the world around us. I hope this morning you've seen why we worship. Verses one through three, worship is right. Verses four through nine, worship is due to our creator. Verses 10 through 15, worship is for this king who is over all. Verses 16 through 19, because he alone can save. And verses 20 through 22, because he doesn't change. In a world that's becoming more hostile to Christianity, we need worship to convince us to stand. There was a man named Sir Thomas More. He was the Lord Chancellor of the realm under King Henry VII. Remember, King Henry was the one who helped start the Protestant Reformation and broke away from the Catholic Church, but really he just wanted to be in charge. And Sir Thomas was one of Henry's most closest colleagues and advisors. And he was told to sign the oath of supremacy that would declare the king to be superior to the church itself. Facing a crowd gathered to witness his execution as he failed to do that, Sir Thomas More stated, and I quote, I am commanded by the king to be brief, and since I am the king's obedient servant, brief I will be. I die his majesty's servant, but God's first. This is the kind of conviction that we need to make all the difference. We need to behold our God seated on his throne so that all worldly powers seem small in comparison. And as our view of God goes bigger, everything else will fit into its proper place and seem small that faces us. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that we might see you as greater because you are. And Lord, may you use us to show all the world that you are God, that you are worthy of worship. God, we pray even today in the week ahead that we might be able to engage in the spiritual battle that is saying your ways are best. Not, Lord, to win some election or some competition or a debate, Lord, but because we want to see you worshiped by all people. You are worthy of it, God, and we pray for our unbelieving family members, our their neighbors, our friends, our leaders, all the people, or that they would see you as the God that you are. And Jesus, they would worship you and build their lives around what you say. We ask, Lord, this would happen to the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen. Reminders there, Pastor Chris, thank you so much for uh, turning our hearts towards worship and speaking of singing, let's sing.